tons of comedians out there that nobody knows their names. Or maybe some people do, but not everybody, right? They're not all Jerry Seinfelds and Chris Rocks and Dave Chappelle's and Tom Segura's and Joe Rogan's. They're not, every comedian is not that. But there are comedians who make great money doing things that they love to do. And one of those is my guest today. Not only is he a great stand-up comedian, he's also been a warm-up comic for TV shows, all kinds of sitcoms and TV shows. He's a comedy writer. He created a movie. He produces his own content. He's working on books. The man is basically a comedy nerd. I love him. He's a great guy. He's like me, comedy nerd. He also loves comic books, so comic book nerd. And he's going to tell us some amazing stories, drop some amazing information on us, and Help us and you navigate the world of comedy from stand-up to writing to filmmaking. He's done it all. And if you don't know Robert G. Lee yet, you'll know him at the end of this. And then you'll become a fan too, just like I am. All right, let's go. Hey everybody, welcome to the Comedypreneur Show. Today we have an amazing, funny, hilarious guest, probably one of the smartest guys I've ever met, uh, and a good mentor to me, a comedy mentor, and I love this guy. Please give it up for Mr. Robert G. Lee. Hello, hello. Please give it up, yes. <laughs> All right, welcome to the show. So I am very familiar with you. I know you very well, um, but for people who may not know you or know about your career, can you give us kind of your origin story, your background story? I know we talked about comic book stuff, so let's hear your origin story. <laughs> My or well, first off, don't feel bad if you've never heard of me or seen me, uh, because that's that's perfectly normal. I made my living really uh, doing warm up comedy for sitcoms. I started off over thirty years ago doing Golden Girls, Designing Women, Perfect Strangers, Family Matters, all those kinds of shows. Went on to do Wings, the pilot of Frasier, I Loves Raymond, and I'm closing on my career with One Day at a Time. I worked with Norman Lear back in the 90s, so he brought me back for this uh, reboot, which was on Netflix and now is on Pop TV. When I say warm-up comic, that's just it's not it's not just getting the audience going for the first 10 minutes. It's the full four to five hours of filming of the show. So when the writers have to rewrite or they have to go do a costume change, you keep the audience going. Uh, that's why I never got a name on the road or uh, became a big comic because I made my living doing that. I didn't have to go on the road and it was really very nice, but it wasn't a trade-off. So I've trained myself how to ad lib and I've been around TV people my whole life. So I, I love writing. That's one of my favorite things. I punched up jokes on step-by-step -step and wings and different things. Um, Gosh, then, you know, went on to write Veggie Tales and then did a faith-based film and I'm now diving back into uh, stand-up comedy full-time. So I'm on the road and uh, doing, uh, I'm doing something called the Corona Diaries on um, YouTube and Facebook and just, just writing a book. I'm always, I'm always working on something. That's awesome. There. So uh, It's not really an origin story. It's more of a list of greatest hits, but that's sort of what I've done. No, no, that's an origin story because he talks about where you started. I mean, because most people don't have no clue that there's even comedians for sitcoms that do warm up and get the crowd pumped up. So that's a cool thing. I only know of one other person, and I think it's – I thought it was Michael Rayner, but maybe it's someone else that I know. But there's another – Michael did a, a little bit. Of, he did one on HBO one time, and but he hasn't done a lot of it, but he has done it. 
Yeah. So there, I know that there's a, there's a few people that do that. And once you're in, you're kind of in, that's like, you're, you go for it. So that's, that's amazing. Well, it, it's, it's what we call golden handcuffs. It's just too tempting to, to walk away from because they pay you and you get insurance. I, we didn't get insurance originally, but now I get it and I'll have a little teeny little pension. So it's like, okay, I'm holding on. <laughs> nice. So what's the, what's it like to be a warm up comic? Cause there's not going to be a lot of people who are going to know what that is or how that works. So what's it like and what do you do? Well, you have to make sure that your ego is on hold because it is not about you. And that is part of the, the well, I wouldn't say allure, but that's part of the problem. It's a, if you want to be a big stand-up comic and, and you do have a big enough ego, you're not going to work in the sitcom world because your job is to get the audience going and they have to love you by the end of the night, but it's about the stars. It's, it, it, I call it the, and I don't know if you ever read Charlotte's Web, but it's like, the, it's the pig, it's the pig. You're in Charlotte's Web was always talking about something other than itself so it is it's a great job if you like to be an anonymous comedian and some people don't like to do that now there are many many perks you do get to be friends with stars you do get extra little bonuses like you like cast me on wings and perfect strangers i'm the delivery guy here and you know the the extra mc over there you know they throw you a bone every once in a while uh but what's it like if it's a great show, there's nothing more fun. I did Wings and, and Old Christine, and the audiences were great. When you have a fan base, when it's a brand new show or it's one that's struggling, they, they bring in Rent-A-Crowd and you get drug rehab groups, and it's the worst job ever because you see these people week after week after week, and they, they're paid to be there. They don't want to be there. They're not interested in you. They may laugh at the show, but when you're on in between, oh, it's death. So it's the best and the worst of the comedy world. Awesome. Man, I am jealous that you worked on Golden Girls. That's like one of my favorite sitcoms. I, wa I still watch it. I watch it still. Like, I love that show. I'm never... It was, it was created by Susan Harris, who did Soap, and she was a genius, and it was just, it was a pleasure. Now, then it was, it was a different world at that time. They, <laughs> they shot two shows. They would shoot one show, just every scene, right straight through, to get where the laughs were. That was the old style of doing it. Then they would go off for dinner, the writers would rewrite and we'd come back and we'd do the real, the, so there's a dress show and a real show. And that was the way that worked. And then it changed and it just became four cameras. You're there for the duration. Some directors work very quickly. Some just take forever. Um, Designing Women was one of those shows. They brought in new directors and they didn't know how to use the, the, the four cameras. And so they would shoot it. They only had in mind one camera. So one director just would shoot the entire scene for this camera then shoot the entire scene again for this camera. It's like, here's an idea. You've got four. Use them all. Uh, so, uh, But you're in the audience, and you can't yell out, hey, get your job. Uh, do it right. So uh, anyway, yeah, Golden Girls was a lot of fun. That was my that was my first show. And that uh, a guy named Ray Combs was the warm-up. He eventually did Family Feud and eventually committed suicide. So not a good character arc or a good career arc. But we worked together, and we got his act together, and he, he actually lied to get into the show. He said um, he introduced himself as an agent representing the funniest guy ever, Ray Combs, and he got the job, and then eventually he got Golden Girl. So that's how he started, and then when he left that show, I moved in. So working on that in that world and seeing directors and how writing works and all that stuff, you've also written stuff yourself. You wrote a, a movie, and can you tell us a little bit about that movie and how people can watch it and that kind of stuff? And that kind of stuff. Yes. Uh, <laughs> in the middle of this big career, I was also the drama director at a church at Bel Air Presbyterian. And it was one of those churches that said they wanted to do sketches and videos. So I started off part 
part time. And then a big thing with me is insurance. They offered me insurance, so I went full time. And so I kind of put my comedy career on hold. But I met some of the most creative and just the most talented people working in Hollywood at Bel Air with a bunch of people who said, Let, let's, you know, it's like, we got a barn, let's put on a show. Well, we did it for years and it was getting a nice reputation there. And people said, you know, you really ought to think about doing movies because there are all these faith-based movies now and they're low budget and, you know, now equipment's gotten cheaper so we can do it. So I said, that's a great idea. Let's do it. Ultimately, it was, it was bad timing because the faith-based community didn't want a comedy. I thought it was the right time. I said, okay, in the 80s and 90s, um, you had you had music, and it started off very, Christian music was very kitschy and not very good, but then Amy Grant came along, and Michael W. Smith, and all of a sudden it elevated to the same level. And then video was really, really bad. Uh, but then VeggieTales came along, and they boosted it, and they made, okay, this is just as good as secular, to give that comparison. I said, okay, movies are next. I was wrong. Uh, so <laughs> movies are still stuck in the we're afraid of laughter. And so we made a faith-based film. It cost $200,000. It was take, I took all of my friends. We put them in one room, basically, because we, there was a church that was going broke in Hollywood and they wanted, they needed money to, um, just to survive. So like Star Trek rented it for a weekend and used a couple of hallways and different things. So we rented it for an entire month. And during that time we shot our film and we, we had other sets, but every every room in that church was used. Okay, it's a bank. Okay, now it's um it's a it's a, a warehouse in Oklahoma. And so we just kept changing things and putting up green screens in the back to add mountains and different things. But it was it was shooting a movie with my friends, and I wrote the movie specifically for their talents. Um, two people were great singers. Wrote that wrote a scene for them. There's this guy's a physical comedian. Wrote stuff for him, and basically it was. Uh, I went around the church and I just took notes like this, this was broken down. That was broken down. It's all in the script. Everything is there. Um, and to give you an idea of the script, it's called, can I get a witness protection? And the idea is just like some like it hot or sister act in that a guy sees a gangland murder. He's hidden by the government in a church. And that's where he's put in witness protection. His first weekend on the job, the head pastor has a heart attack and dies and our lead character becomes the head of a church, and he knows nothing about it. So that's the story. And, you know, madcap humor ensues. Uh, so it's a guy who knows nothing about religion leading a church with, of course, angry people in church wanting it to go their way. So it was, I had a great time with it. What we found when we released it, and this is just one of those ironic things that just you never know until, of course, it's done. When groups came, like, like the, the Christian bookstores and different places said, oh, no we can't take this film. It's like, well, well, why not? They said, uh, well, because the guy in the pulpit doesn't have a seminary degree. So, <laughs> well, yeah, that's kind of the point of the film. It says, well, we, we could never show those to our customers because everything we put up has to be Christian and it has to be properly vetted. And um, a big cable, Pure Flix said the exact same thing. I have the quotes. It's like, well, we could never show this to our fan base, our customer base, unless the guy behind the pulpit as a degree in seminary and how that, why that rule was brought up. I mean, it was just like, okay, obviously you're afraid of comedy. It's a little too dangerous for you. 
as a comedian, I had bad timing. So loved making it, worked with my friends, and, and it, gets, it gets great reviews. It's on Amazon now. You can get on Amazon Prime, or you can, you know, so you can just watch it. You can stream it, or you can actually buy a copy. But uh, it's kind of fun to hear the comments coming from people who watch it and go, oh, I, I, you know, I finally saw this little film. It's, it's, I didn't know it was going to be much, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. So it's got some great talent, some good comedy. Boom, that's it. I made a movie. That's, no, that's great because a lot of people want to make movies, especially comedians. We want to be more than just on stage. You want to make things or whatever. Yeah. What was the hardest part of that process? Uh, because you did from writing to post, right? Would be my guess. Post-production definitely was the hardest because everything was done on favors. It was, we, we raised just enough money to get it done and it was, and we did it and we made it through and we filmed everything. And man, we had that puppy down. I, I, if I have any advice for anybody, it's have good pre-production have a great first AD. Man, he kept us on it. I knew exactly how long I had for each scene to film in that afternoon. So we mapped out the whole day before every day started because we only had 16 days of filming. But it was, okay, for this scene, you've got two hours. And I just became a human time clock. That's all I was because I knew I can get that shot. I can't get that shot. I got to give up that shot and, and come over here because I've only got, now I've got 15 minutes and we do it. Boom. We're out of that scene. We go to the next one. So it was this precision timing that I happen to be able to do. Now, a lot of people who are just creative and, and just like, well, let's do this or that. Don't make a low budget film because <laughs> you've got to be precise in how you do it. But the hardest part was post-production purely because we didn't have any money and it was all done on favors. So when you're doing favors, all right, the editor worked on Supernatural and now she's an editor over on SWAT. Well, we had to wait till the season was over for her to edit it. And when she was, and then we had to do reshoots and we had to wait for her to finish her show until she could edit it again. The guys who did the, the opening graphics were animators who worked for Disney. We had to wait for Disney to fin finish their project for um, Disney France because our guy was doing Tinkerbell sprinkles coming down on the castle in Disney France, and he couldn't come do our animation until he was done with that. The same thing with the music. The same thing with the mixing. Everything was free or very, very low budget, so you're just dependent on favors. When you're shooting it, you know that this is the schedule. We have to have you here at this time. Now that scheduling, we were able to work around. Like we had a couple guys who, were, who had real jobs or had um, like one guy was, um, he was working on a Disney program and he was a writer on that. We only had him on the weekends. So we shot all of his scenes on the weekends. Well, there's some reaction shots that we had to shoot during the week. <laughs> so my fun of watching the movie is, that guy's over there, and that crowd's over there, and they're not even in the same room at the same time. But it looks like they are, but we had to shoot them that way just to get it done. You can be creative when you're shooting it, but in post-production, you just wait. And so it literally took years to get it done. Now, did you go in with a shot list? I know, like, I, I'm a filmmaker myself, so did you go in with a shot list every day or, or plan that out beforehand and know these are the shots we need, and that's what helped with the first AD keeping things on track? Yes, I storyboarded the entire picture, just really, really crude cartoons, and I've got it somewhere <laughs> with one of my scripts, uh, but I, I storyboarded it out and then promptly tossed it. So we had a shot list, but it was very crude in that we have to go, we have to get this, this, this. I had my essentials, and if I covered my essentials, I can get to my wish list. 
And sometimes all we got was one essential. It's like, I need to, I need to dolly in and, and get that girl crying. I need to have one tear fall. And so you have to get the actor ready. And they're saying, we've got to stop this in 15 minutes because the crew's going overtime and the actress is getting ready. And I've got, the, oh, sorry, this, you know, the, the dolly squeaked. We have to go back and go back to one. So I had that shot list, but sometimes it was, nope. And then you just go to your film school. What's my, you know, what's my coverage? What do I need? This will cut together. Done. Move. So yeah, you the, the shot list is what I call the wish list because you can't always do it. Right. And did you have like a certain amount of shots? Like I'm only going to do this shot three times and then we're moving on or like, was it all only based on time? It's both. Okay. I mean, I can't say that I said, um, you know, you, you try and get it right. And if you don't get it right, then you scramble in the amount of time that you have. It is, you can't leave a scene until you have it covered. And it does not have to be pretty. It just has to be covered. And it's like, all right, maybe the audience won't notice how flat this framing is, but I'm just, I, at least I got the dialogue in. So it's a great question, but that question that you ask is really from someone who has a budget. And when you don't have a budget, it's, did I succeed in getting on film what was necessary to tell the story? That's your base level. That's where you are. And then you get to be artistic if you have an extra 15 minutes, yeah, you play. And you say, let's do this for fun. Or, you know, that was a good performance. Let's try it this way. You can do that. But not very much. For the most part, it's it's perfunctory and you're just, you're getting her done. All right. What about, are you, would you be interested in doing like a sitcom? Since you've worked on so many sitcoms and seen how they work, would you ever want to write and create a sitcom? Or is that more difficult than a, than a feature film? Or how does that work comparatively? Well, they're totally different animals. And I did write on several sitcoms in the 90s. And I always thought I would be on sitcoms. That was kind of my dream and desire. And so that's why I did TV warm-up to move into sitcoms. And when I got in the room, I found a very interesting thing. It's whoever is in charge of the room, the writing table reflects their personality. So as a stand-up comic, who was used to getting in front of crowds. I know I can be funny. I know I can make people laugh. You get in a room and you have to make those nine people laugh in that room. But more importantly, you have to make the guy at the end of the table laugh, the guy who's in charge of the laughs. And each one has a diff different personality. This one guy had such a big ego that no joke would make it into the script unless he said it. So if you said something and he thought it was funny and he repeated it, then it got in. But if he didn't say it again, it would never make it into the show. Other shows were more condescending. And it was basically, you didn't go to Harvard. Uh, you don't have this kind of degree. Therefore, and you're just a stand-up. You're a warm-up. So we're not going to listen to your ideas. And so you're, you're, you're fighting against a hostile crowd. And I did enough rooms with enough personalities to see that I don't know if I fit in this world. I kind of like being in charge of my own stand-up and my own shows. And I gravitated toward doing those things. But if, if someone offered me money, you bet I'd go on a sitcom. You bet I'd be in a writer's room. But they, they are very, very difficult. And it's a, it's a tough life. It really is. Um, and it was interesting watching uh, Modern Family close down this week. And uh, Steve Levitan and Chris Lloyd were two writers on there. And Steve, they're both on Wings when I was working on Wings. And then they went on to Frasier. Uh, Steve was such a, he's a great guy. And I worked with him on Just Shoot Me and a couple other sitcoms. Modern Family was done without an audience. But here's a guy, he's just so incredibly talented. He's really smart. He's really good. And I was talking to my wife saying, you know, it's, it's like being on a, a basketball or, or a baseball team. There's the star. 
that, you know, that's the guy. You know, it's like being on a team with Michael Jordan. I always say that I'm the Derek Fisher of the Lakers. You know, <laughs> put me in at the end. I can shoot a three-point, three-pointer, but Kobe and Magic and, you know, they're going to get the big attention. And I'm going to be the, the journeyman. So I was always a journeyman writer and a journeyman comic, and I was never the star. So I didn't – the opportunity, the cards didn't fall that way for me. Okay. Yeah, my friend – another friend always says, you ride the horse that's running. And so because I could do TV warm-up and because I was able to work in churches and corporations for doing clean comedy, that was the way I went. So did I love sitcoms? Yes. Did I ever find the right fit? No. And the ones that I found that where I fit – like Step by Step and Perfect Strangers, those sitcoms went out of vogue. They became the ensemble comedy with Seinfeld and shows like that. And I looked around and found I didn't fit. So I moved on to other things. So what's your next project? What's the next thing you're, that you're going to work on? Because you're, you're a great writer. I mean, that's, that's the truth. You are a great stand-up, but you're also a great writer. What's your next project? And how do you decide what project you're going to work on next? Well, going back to you ride the horse that's running, what am I able to do? Do I love screenplays? Yes, I do. And I've got an idea for screenplay. I said I wasn't going to do anymore, but I'm still writing them. So I, I, after um, Can I Get a Witness Protection came out, I kept writing screenplays. But they're just, and I know this whole program is about how can you make money as, as a comedian and as a writer, but it's really difficult because it's not just someone saying this is a good script. It's can we get back our money? And the, the biggest guilt of my life is that people put thousands of dollars into my film and we just had to take a tax write-off and that just killed me. So to do that again, somebody else would have to put up the money who wants to do it. Do I want to? Yes. Do I have those scripts? Yes. I've got a Christmas musical. That's really, really funny. And it's, it's just a different take on it. So if I ever make it anywhere here, look what I have in my drawer. That's what people do all the time. I've got several of these scripts ready to go. So what I'm doing is working on projects that I can do because they don't cost a lot of money. One is a book. Um, I'm writing a book. I just finished one. Uh, Josh McDowell's reading it right now. I just sent it off to him. It's called What's the Big Idea? And the, uh, it's called A Comedian Explains God, the Universe, and Other Minor Stuff. So as a comedian who has a, a faith-based bent, I just looked at faith and science and said, you know what? We're looking at the same thing. How about if there's a smart elk in the back of the room going, but don't you guys see you're both, you're disagreeing on the end conclusion, but you're both seeing the very same thing. So how can we bring you two together? So I did a deep dive into science. I read physics. I read things I never read in high school. And I basically dumbed it down for an audience like me. And I just, I'm a smart aleck and funny. And it, it talks about all the, all the things in the universe and the world and your body and how the cumulative total for me shows there must be a higher intelligence that created all this. From there, I introduce who that is, and it happens to be God. And from there, I talk about my journey. So that's what that book is. My next book is probably going to be called, um, what am I calling it now? I'm calling <laughs> it The Human Condition. That's what that title is. Um, I'm now doing something called The Corona Diaries. And uh, this writing, uh, I, I love writing. It's just what I love to do. Every day I wake up, I've done 25 so far. I write a two minute monologue. It's like doing a, a newspaper column uh, like um, Dave Barry used to do. And from that, uh, the, the whole gist of the Corona Diaries is I woke up one morning and said, what if this wipes us out? We better tell uh, the next civilization that comes along who we were and what we thought and why we thought this way. So the whole series is based on 
what we humans do, why we like pets, how we have to lose weight, what advertising does, what we think about religion, what we think about relationships. And each day is a different angle. And that's what I'm presenting with the Corona Diaries. Well, from that, I'm realizing, oh, I've done 25 two-minute monologues. Oh, you know, if I, this goes on another month, I'm going to have a couple hours worth of material eventually if this keeps going. Uh, and so that will become probably a one-man show or it'll be called, I'm, I'm thinking of doing like I did in my book, What's the Big Idea? I took a deep dive into physics, uh, which I never knew, but it's like found fascinating things and I made them funny. I'll be doing the same thing with the human condition about why we think certain ways about this and what history has shown us and what happened in the past and how we're different than where we were and where we're going. And then just take every subject matter that we humans experience. And I'm, I think that's going to be my next book. So what can I do to keep that creative juice going? The juices flowing is right. And so whether it's a screenplay or a book or a video blog or a stand-up routine, I'm always writing something. I, I just have to do it. That's awesome. Do you have a process? Because I know a lot of comedians or a lot of writers have a process like I listen to a specific type of music. I drink a specific drink. I have uh, wireless headphones, like all these things. I really have a process to get myself in the mode to write. I know that during this time, this is my writing time, all that kind of stuff. Do you set that up yourself or are you just kind of willy nilly whenever you want to do it? My process is a thing that I call pressure. <laughs> it has been that way from, from day one. Uh, a little side note here. I did a, a radio college. I did a, a, excuse me, in college, I did a radio show and it was a half hour comedy show every single week on the public station at a, in college. It was a lot of fun. Well, over this last week, one of the people from that show passed away. And so there was a, back, a big reunion online and we did, we had a reunion show about nine years ago. And so we put that out again. And I realized my wife and I were listening to it because she was in college and she was part of the program with me. And by the way, Nancy Cartwright, who did um, Bart Simpson, he was all, she was also on the show. So that was kind of a little fun Hollywood thing there. But I have the discipline. Most artists just are, are very free. And it's like, well, I, you know, when the muse hits me or, yeah, I have to have this certain drink or I have to have that. or Well, I'll see. No, that's not the way I work. I knew even in college, I was writing like a sitcom. We're going to do the writers will get together Wednesday. I'm going to finish the script on Saturday. We'll have a read through Sunday afternoon, and then we're going to record the show. And we do this every single week. It was the discipline of doing it. And that's just who I am. So now with this Corona Diaries, what's my motivation? I've got a show I have to record at nine o'clock tonight to film it and then edit it and post it by tomorrow morning. Pressure is a wonderful thing. Now, some of it has to be self-imposed, like my book, when I wrote, when I wrote, what's the big idea, I knew I wanted to get it done by Christmas. All right. So that means, okay, how many chapters can I do? And how long is it going to take me? All right. And so then, and then it's like, oh no, now I've got to rewrite the whole thing. And so then it got longer, but still it was this, here's my assignment. I know I want to get this done. So no, I don't have music. I, matter of fact, music is a, a distraction to me. If I, if I hear any noise anywhere, it's like, shut the door. Let me just be quiet and just have my thoughts because most things are distractions. I know some people, if they're, if they're writing an action scene, you know, they like to put on a musical scores of their fa of famous action. Well, that's fine. More power to you. Whatever helps you write. Mine is sit down and do it. And when you can't, get up, have some chocolate, walk around the house, sit down, think. I just let my mind go a certain place. But I'm always taking notes. That's another point. It's like, oh, I want to get back to that. And so once I look at those notes, I go, oh, that's where I was going. And then I just start writing. So 
it's not as complicated um, after a while as I think people, my daughter has great angst about writing, not me. I'm, I'm that journeyman. I just sit down and I do it. And then you go back and you rewrite. That was the first lesson I learned in film school. It's not the writing. It's the rewriting. It's you go back in, let it go for a little bit, then come back and go, oh, I can say this better, or this could be funnier, or that could be. It's just get it down. Um, the TV writers call it a vomit pass. I'm very good at the vomit pass. Just blah, get it out first draft, and then you go back and fix it later. So if there is a process, that would be it. Vomit pass, fix it. And then find, and then as you do it, you eventually find out what you really want to say, which is another thing that amazes me. You never know what you're saying until after two or three drafts. Then you go, oh, that's what I meant to say. Sometimes you get lucky with a stand-up routine and you can tie things together, but it usually takes a little bit. Like in my book, What's the Big Idea? It really wasn't until the fourth draft until I was able to connect the ending with the beginning and, and get the tone right. And there were so many different elements I was putting in there. I don't want to be snarky. I want to be kind. I can't insult people that don't believe like I believe. Okay, how do I fix all this? And it takes a while of massaging until you go, okay, now I think it's where I want it to be. So that's my process. That's awesome. And by the way, when I say my process, I just mean like I know I have like these things get me in the zone. It's kind of like when you get ready to play sports, right? You like maybe you do the huddle up or you high five the thing on your way out of the locker room, whatever it is, that little thing that amps you up. I have that process and the music I listen to has no words. It's a, uh, yeah. it's binaural beats music. So what it does is it actually activates the creative part of your brain and it's on real low. And then I can just like, I just zone, like I'm in that. Zone. So that's fantastic. That process is so much fun. Now, one more question and then we'll kind of wrap this up for you. Cause I know you have, you have more writing, more stuff to do. What is the, what is the biggest thing that comedians or comedy writers can do to get better at their craft or get better in their career? Like what can move their career ahead? No matter what they want to do, really. The best quote comes from Steve Martin. Be so good, they can't deny you. And so the biggest problem I see with comedians is they're always asking the wrong question. The, the, and so do actors and so does every profession. People are always asking, how can I get an agent? Uh, what, 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 what do I have to do to get on dry bar comedy? Uh, how much material do I need? Now that I've got this 45 minutes, where can I go? Who can book me? It's like, eh, you're asking the wrong question. Is this material good? If you're an actor, can you make me cry or feel something without giggling at you and seeing through um, what a bad actor you are? Are you believable? It's like, as a stand-up comic, I find that most comics don't edit their material. They don't go back. They, they become complacent. They go, okay, I've got five minutes. Great. Now I'm ready. No, you're not. You, you don't have five minutes. You think it's five minutes. It's really one. And so, and when you get 45 minutes, you don't have 45 minutes. You have a good 20 minute set that is padded out to 45 minutes. I remember I was with a comedian one time and she, she said, okay, I, I want your honest critique. And I said, well, you squeezed a good 25 minutes into a 45 minute set. And she said, I understand. Thank you. <laughs> because she just kind of meandered and she went over the same subject as I, and so I'm going edit there, edit there, edit there. That's the way my brain works. I am because I come from a writing background more than a performing background. I perform just because I'm the cheapest one I could hire. I can't help but look at any film that a comedian does any writing and go without, I mean, it's just impossible. It's in my nature to go cut that, cut that, cut that. And that happens when you have 
a mentor or somebody looking at your script or an audience telling you that's not funny, which is when you see the people who are really good, you know how they got that way by the audiences telling them repeatedly that joke didn't work, but that one's funny. Jim Gaffigan got that little voice in his head of being like, well, why is he saying that? You know, it just came from working on stage so much. And he's also very smart and very funny, but he had this process of doing it so many times, it's like Pavlov's theory of comedy. The more times you do it, the more you realize this is going to stay, that's going to go. Seinfeld calls it, <laughs> each joke tries out for the team. And he says, well, you know, you're not a bad joke, but you're not good enough to make the team. I'll give you a tryout. I'll let you try out a couple times. But no, sorry, we're going to cut you. And so he looks at it with dispassion, I guess is the best way to put it. Because you can fall in love with a joke, and that's your baby, and I'm going to say that forever. And it's like, you know what? It, it, the tone doesn't fit. It doesn't, it's not funny enough. It's too long. It's too wordy. Editing. If I were to give any advice to new comedians, it would be learn how to edit or be gutsy enough to give your material to somebody else who can edit it for you. Because I guarantee you, a lot of what you're saying is either repetitive or doesn't build to a climax or you don't know how to tell a story. But that's the big problem that I see. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Where can people find you? Where can they find the film, your comedy, all that stuff, or any any of your stuff? Where where can they go? Oh, well, um, I guess you, you start off with the website, and that's robertglee.com. And then my video is available on Amazon. You put in, can I get a witness protection? And that'll pop up, and you can, you can watch, stream that or watch that. On um, Facebook, you know, it's Robert G. Lee, or you can put in the Corona Diaries on YouTube or on Facebook. You know, it's the same thing everywhere. It's, it's, it, but if you go to my website, it's got the Twitter handle and the Facebook handle and, you know, blah, 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 all the, you know, our communication style. It's no longer just your name. It's, you know, this has, you, you know, I'm sorry, Twitter already has Robert G. Lee, so you have to take <laughs> the E out. You know, you could be Robert Lee. So, yeah, you go on my Facebook page, it has all those links. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you again for giving us all the, this feedback and information. It's going to be super helpful. Appreciate it. I hope it is. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Right. If you didn't say wow at the end of that, go back and watch it again, because that was amazing. He is so awesome. He's a mentor of mine. He's taught me so much, told me so many things. Uh, he's been one of those people who always gives me another idea, adds stuff to my jokes gives me great feedback, been on my shows, been supportive of me my whole career. So I am so appreciative of Robert G. Lee. And you should check out Can I Get a Witness? You should check out his comedy specials. He's got albums on iTunes, Spotify, all kinds of places like that. He's got uh, some of the stand-up specials on Amazon as well. Check him out. And you guys, if you didn't learn anything there, rewind. Go all the way back and watch it again because he blew my mind, right? And that's why I love him. So if you want more interviews, information, all that stuff just like that, subscribe, like, follow, put that little bell on there, and get ready for more stuff because the Comedypreneur train, Comedypreneur show is not slowing down. I'm coming at you with information, interviews, all kinds of stuff. I'm going to do some top five soon. That's right, top five tips weekly. It's going to be great. You're going to love it. Join, follow, subscribe. Thanks, guys. Have a great one. Yeah. <laughs>